Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show on the Compete Network, powered by Clue, the podcast for product marketers and competitive professionals looking to give their companies a competitive advantage. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and since last week's episode with Jen Roberts was such a hit, we decided to keep the CE show on the road train rolling with another awesome recurring guest, and that was Elise Knuckles, the Senior Director of Competitive Intelligence at Palo Alto Networks. She's one of the best around, and she does not hold back, which one makes for a great podcast guest, but also makes her one of the best storytellers and one of the best people to learn from in the industry. A couple of things we talked about in Scottsdale were some of her career highlights, including winning a multi-million dollar deal, no less, how her team's priorities have shifted over the past 12 months, and why she thinks that you're completely missing the mark if you're ignoring tactical deal and seller support for what she likes to call strategery. Again, Elise is one of my favorites. Such a great conversation, great episode. Make sure again to check out this interview on YouTube shot at the Airbnb by our video whiz Grayson in Scottsdale. And while you're on Clue's YouTube page, you need to check out the season three premiere of Blind Spots, hosted by Double Check Research founder and now Clue's VP of Win-Loss, Ryan Sorley. Ryan is talking to CEOs, investors, founders, all about how they use Win-Loss Intel to build billion-dollar businesses he had the chief growth officer at Amplify, Vijay Gupta, Force episode one. And it's awesome. These are really, really sharp people talking about billion dollar decisions that they make thanks to win loss. Again, Blind Spots season three premiere on the Compete Network and check it out on Clue's YouTube page. With that all said, let's get into today's episode with Elise Knuckles. Elise, thank you for joining us. Thank you for allowing me to be on here for the third time. Third time, third time. We also have a live audience in the <laughs> back, so there might be some like cues and some like applause and stuff like that. What are you excited for with Intellicon? Ugh, I mean, I've been to, I don't even know how many. Oh, I mean, been in CI. What My first one was probably in 2006, and I've been to most of them since. So, I mean, yeah, do the math, right? Math is hard. So it's a lot. It's easy enough. Um, so what I look forward to these conferences is really is the meeting people, talking, sharing, learning. I mean, we were just at lunch, random conversation, learning about what some, some friends are doing for a book and a theory and some ideas they have about how to communicate their um, ideas of competitive intelligence, how to apply it to real life. And I, I just find that fascinating what everyone's up to. And I just always learn from people. So it's the kind of conversations is why I'm here. And I, I look forward to seeing everybody. So when I asked you to join, you've been known to give a take or two, share your opinions. What is one misnomer about the compete profession where you want to set the record straight? There are so many. Um, you can give me multiple. I mean, I, the, my husband introduces me as a corporate spy at dinner <laughs> parties because it's the easiest way to say what we do. I mean, we're not spies and that, I think that's a misnomer in general. Um, that we only do strategy that we only do forward thinking 10 year, 50 year type, you know, looking out to the future. And I think that's actual 
PS, you know, we, there's a lot of people who are here at this conference who are doing tactical support, doing sales support. So it's the gamut from the day-to-day, -day, everyday sales all the way to the 50-year strategy. So you've got a, a variety of people doing a variety of things. Um, and CI supports so much, so many different pieces of an organization or, and, and different components of it. So I don't know. I think that there's people who see CI only in one capacity in their company think that's all it is. But yet there's so much variety of what you're going to see here at this conference. A lot of stuff has changed in the economy and the market. A lot of like business objectives have shifted. When you look at kind of the priorities of your compete program and your team from a year ago to, to today, has it shifted at all? It has. I think it's focused more on the win the wins, the getting the sales teams to be effective, to sell against a very hot competitive landscape. I mean, I'm in high tech, in cybersecurity. There's a new competitor that emerges literally every hour. I mean, now that I'm sitting here, it's probably three competitors have just emerged <laughs> out of nowhere because some VC gave them money. Um, and so we have to be able to combat that threat. They say they have the next new hot thing. So we have to be ready for that, being the leader in cybersecurity. Um, so we're seeing a shift, I think, I mean, yes, there's still importance on the strategy. You still have to be thinking about the new innovative technologies and how you're going to innovate. But you also have to be thinking about how you help your sellers in those knife fights. Because I always say, if you don't help your sellers today, you're not, what, what's, what's the point of having a five-year strategy? You won't be around. And in my industry, that's very true. Uh, on that note, we've been talking to a, a lot of people already on the show. Uh, we've talked to a bunch of Compete Pros. Clara, who's in the back, has been talking to Clue customers as well about quantifying and closing your competitive revenue gap, helping tip those winnable deals, the neck and neck deals, like you mentioned, incredibly competitive landscape right now where there's multiple competitors in every single deal and they're often one on the margins. We've been talking a lot about that. So could you share a story or two about how you and your compete team have helped tip some of those neck and neck deals throughout your career? It could be at Palo Alto or previous stops. Oh, so many, I don't know where to start. Um, Your most memorable win. Oh God, well, that goes back years. Um, well, I mean, honestly, I'll start back where I, when I started in my profession, I was in, when that started, I was in my second iteration of CI at McAfee. And I had gone to a CI conference or a CI training where I was learning about all things CI. And I was doing tactical support. We were doing sales escalations, all those things. Well, the instructors of that course flat out told me, well, if you're not talking to your CEO every day, you should just quit your job because you're pointless. Literally said this to me. I'm not going to say names who they were because I'm being recorded by on camera. <laughs> but um, I, I went back, I was defeated. I thought, oh my God, this is what I do. I, I do sales support. Well, we ended up winning a multi-million dollar deal that week when I got back from that conference. And I realized, you know what? We won that deal because my team supported them with the intelligence they needed. Um, and they gave them the right positioning and they told them how to defeat the competitors based on our internal knowledge or testing our intelligence. And that was that influence directly influenced that deal. So that was my pivotal moment to say, you know what, I get strategy, get it, but I'm not going to just quit my job because I'm not reporting to the CEO. I need to help the sellers. And even in today's, you know, fast forward 20 years or how many years that is, uh, we have competitors that are positioning themselves as cheaper, quicker solutions to use. And having an intelligence function that can debunk those things and get to the real meat of things and find out, okay, yeah, they see that they have higher performance, but did you look at how they're actually getting those numbers? Getting into the real nitty gritty details of it help our teams understand how to combat those claims and the objection handling that goes with um, competing against some of those ankle biters and those niche vendors that are trying to steal our market share. Can you, like, based on that story, that 
uh, experience at McAfee, is there something you've taken from that in your career at different stops now that you're like, I need to implement this, or there's a there's a, a, a winning tactic or something I was doing by being boots on the ground that you've sort of implemented throughout your career? Well, it, it, impl in implementing win-loss was huge. It was the before that we didn't have really a full win-loss program where we learned from our wins and losses. We did it ad hocly, you know, here and there, but never a, a real full function. So after that experience, we developed a win-loss program where we were actually interviewing account teams, eventually customers, and realizing that intel comes in. That's the real-life intel of what our sellers go through and what their perception is. Because perception drives reality. So you can believe all day long, you know, based on data sheets or based on analysis that you're better than someone else, but the perception is what drives a sale. So if we have to understand the perception and what our customers and what our account teams believe, how we are positioned, and then help them see a different perspective. That was probably the biggest highlight from that experience at McAfee is realizing that win-loss was a key component of um, what we need to include to our program. How do you see them merging? How do you how do you run those in tandem and like the kind of overlap between compete and win loss? Like they're they're married, but like it would be interesting to see how you've kind of implemented the two and brought them together. Well, they're very interlocked. I mean, it's it's you learn the intel you gain from a win loss interview, whether it's a customer or an account team, drives right directly into your compete program. So it, it, in in your compete program drives the opportunities you go interview. So they're so intertwined. Um, you can look at your win-loss data in Salesforce or whatever CRM you're doing, you're using, and determine who your top competitors are and that drives your research efforts. But your research efforts go, wow, wait a minute, this competitor over here has got some really interesting, let's go see what our customers believe or what the prospects that didn't choose us, what they believe about this company because maybe there's some unique thing they're doing that we're not capturing in our analysis. So it's it really goes hand in hand. It's circular. I don't think there's a great interlock as far as like a great way to like a Lego system where it goes together. I think it's like a big circle that you learn from one and go into the other. On that note, you mentioned sort of like, yeah, the interlock, like deliver you building more holistic insights that are kind of looking at every start of the buyer journey, customer journey, what the account teams are hearing and saying on a deal as well. Um, in terms of when you kind of get this full picture and then it's this sort of enablement piece, how do you deliver those insights that are usable for sellers in the field? I want to share a little, um, a, we did a research report that's actually just coming out with a bunch of revenue leaders, 300 plus revenue leaders, dark C-suite director level. And what was interesting to me, and I'll get to how this relates to that other point soon here, but what was interesting to me is that like 72% of like, I'm confident that our reps know our biggest differentiators, our competitors' biggest differentiators, but only 31% were confident that they could actually communicate and showcase that differentiated value effectively. So with all of that context of like building the most, um, the strongest competitive insights, how do you, as a, someone in Compete, help a seller go from just knowing these things to being able to execute? It's value. I don't care, you can have differentiation all day long, but if a customer doesn't derive actual value from it, no one gives a shit. It's done, it's off, it's off the table, it doesn't matter. So it's taking the things that you're good at, your company is good at, and translating it in a way that positively impacts the business of the company you're trying to get your business with. So whether that's you know making your company more efficient. In my business, it's, it's securing, it's providing more protection, an easier, more simplistic way, a platform approach, whatever you wanna call it, to making it easier for them to 
to protect their environments from security threats. Um, finding those value statements, and if you can quantify it, especially in my industry, very, very data-centric, giving them those metrics that show why you're better than the competition, that helps them make the business case internally. Um, if you talk differentiation and I have all these bits and bytes, I have all these features, yada, yada, it, one of the best ways to diffuse that in a competitive situation is like, did you turn any of those on? Half the time, like we had a, one of my other previous companies, we were against a certain competitor that literally every single, I swear to God, every week they have a new feature. Yeah, it was, it was it's ridiculous. And we came, we basically would just ask the customers, the prospects, how many of those do you use? How many have you ever considered using? And once you ask the customer that, they're like, hmm, we use like two. Oh, well, the two that you're using, by the way, we have those two in our current portfolio, and this is how we're better, and this is the value that we provide over that competitor. It's always about value and bringing it back to the customer, not so much about you, but about what the customer needs. I'm curious as well in somewhere like Palo, how many, how many sellers do you have at Palo Alto or like roughly? Like there's- A lot. You've got a lot. <laughs> And I'm always curious at this sort of, so you understand at the core is let's, let's focus on value. How do you ensure such a big sales force is doing exactly that? Oh, that it's, it's going, giving them the data where they live. So if their data is in, if they live in Slack, if they live in Salesforce, if they live in a CI portal or a, um, a intranet, go where they live and bring the data to them so they're not having to hunt and peck and find it. Because if they have to go look for it, they will find the seven-year-old battle card that you have somewhere stored, somewhere in the Google Drive that you're like, why did we not archive this thing? They will find it, they will use it, and they will fail because the data is completely out of date. So it's by making sure you're pushing the data at the right time to the individual seller. And it's also proactive, going out and reminding them, hey guys, there's a CI team. There's, there's this, all this content. I mean, it's, you have to constantly remind them. So it's getting on all hands calls, whether it's a field call, it's a sales leadership call, whatever it is, being constantly in their face. I think also newsletters are hugely important. There's, there was a movement a few years ago about how newsletters are dead and they're stupid and they're useless. And I think that's complete bogus. Newsletters are a constant reminder of what's going on. And it reminds the team, the sellers that these competitors are out there. This is what they're doing. This is how they're communicating. This is how we combat it. And so they also remember, oh God, there's a CI team. Holy maybe I should go to the CI portal and go look at content. So it's 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 combination of being meeting them where they are as well as um, constantly reminding them that you exist. Why do you think people started to turn on newsletters? And in your opinion, what have you done to make a newsletter incredibly valuable for sellers? I think it was that whole strategic mindset. It was the whole Going go back, back to the strategic I'm calling strategy. I'm I see say, your eye twitching a little I bit know. as you said that. It, it's this hot topic with me, and I call it strategy as a joke because, like, go back to the George Bush thing. You know, um, it, it is it's important. I don't want to diminish that, but I think that whole push to be only in the C-suite, only driving strategy, said newsletters because that's tactical. That's what's going on today. No one cares about that. Well, that's crap. That actually is important. And I think the way that we did it, I know the McAfee team was awesome at this. It was we had the best newsletters because it was a little bit of sense of sarcasm. We threw some Easter eggs with in you? there. With you? Sarcasm with you? Oh, that's a little bit. Actually, the team was so much better at sarcasm. I was the I was the ninja editor. I would take their write-ups and I would like, before they would see it, I'd like make a little ninja edit. And then they'd see it in the final report going, I didn't write that. <laughs> what happened? Um, that was notorious for that. But that is knowing your culture. So if your culture supports sarcasm, wit, fun, 
include it for sure. Match your team's, your company's culture. Um, and in cybersecurity and high tech, it definitely is it very much a favorable, favorable thing to have because people want to read it. They're looking for the Easter eggs. They want to re respond to the email going, hey, I saw that, haha. -ha. You know, they think that they've, you know, learned something or that they've, they're learning things that they don't, wouldn't read on their own because you're putting some sense of fun in it. Like financials. No one wants to read a summary about you know, a competitor's quarterly forecast or quarterly earnings report. But if you add in some flavor of fun, they're gonna read it, they're gonna remember it, and they're gonna know that they know, they remember that you, you know, wrote that piece and that you are the expert on the competitor. How are you making financials fun? How are you making numbers fun? <laughs> Great story. <laughs> I don't know if I can say this on camera. Um, it was a skip conference. Um, gosh, when was that? Uh, circa probably early 2010s-ish, somewhere in there. We were at a Waffle House at about three in the morning. The whole team was. I know, this is a tradition, and we'll be going to Waffle House this year as well. Um, and we all may have consumed a few beverages. And we were talking about the a certain competitor's financials. And we were talking about how they were crap. They were making stuff up. They were you know, beefing up certain numbers. And we thought that you know, they, were in, they were in demise. And I wasn't, it was two team members in particular, names to be or not to be discussed here, but you can probably figure out who they are. Um, but we were, we were talking very loudly, and then we got tapped on the shoulder. The competitor we were talking about was sitting right behind and critiqued our assessment in grave detail at three in the morning at a Waffle House. So you can make financials fun by, by poking holes at things. And then, you know, we actually reiterated that conversation and what that competitor told us at the Waffle House in the next weekly report. And I think we might've actually referenced the Waffle House specifically in that report as well. And the, and the time that you were at the Waffle House or did that one I get... don't think we disclosed the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Waffle House by itself was enough. We'll be right back after a word from the Compete Network. I'm Ryan Sorley, VP of Win Loss at Clue and founder of Double Check Research. And on season three of Blind Spots, I'm sitting down with the executives, founders, and investors who make win loss an indispensable part of their go to market strategy. From executives like Vijay Gupta, the chief growth officer at Amplify, to the former CEO of Demandware, now Salesforce Commerce Cloud, Tom Ebling. We're going to deep dive into why they care about win-loss and why you should too. Know your buyer, know your competition, and learn from leaders who know both better than anyone, all on season three of Blind Spots, powered by the Compete Network. All right, back to the show. Um, let's get a little meta here because you are, <laughs> you, you've been emphasizing the importance of tactical mm -hmm. intel. Um, do you have a tactic for implementing tactic, tactical, look at that. Now I'm making myself a tongue twister here. Right. For, for example, competitive newsletter, what's a tactical piece of advice that listeners should implement into their newsletter to make it valuable as well? Okay. So newsletters first for one, never, ever, ever use chat GPT or any AI bot to write them. Don't ever take some generated summary. It needs to be your words and your words only period. No, no, no compromise. No comp. That's it. You have to put it in your own words. Secondly, every write up needs to have an insight needs to have some, why do I give a crap? Why, what should I do with this? So, so competitor releases new product. write the summary of what it does. Why is it important? And at the end, what is our, our position? If you're writing to sellers, write, okay, how do you combat this in an opportunity? If this comes up in a conversation, what do you say? And, and talk to the sellers like you're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, so you always wanna have that insight and put it in your own words in the same dialogue 
and company culture that your company supports. Let's get to your favorite thing, talking with leadership, meeting with leadership, yes. justifying the impact, the work, the, the revenue impact that you and your compete program have for the business. I think now more than ever, that is critically important to prove what you're doing is impacting the business, especially companies looking to cut costs, be efficient as possible. What are some of the things you've done in your career or you're doing today to prove that impact? Oh, um, well, first of all, if you're being asked for ROI, I think a very, very wise person told me this. If you're asked for um, ROI at any point in your career, you've already failed because you haven't shown the value immediately. Now, like new CI programs may be asked that, but you don't want, as, being asked that question means you're already on the hot seat. Key, don't be on the hot seat. Don't ever have someone question your value and want you to put some kind of random ROI metric because I'm sure you can do an entire series on how to create ROI in CI and everyone will have, you'll ask 10 people and you have 75,000 different answers of how to do it. it, it and none of them are right, honestly. It all depends on the organization and what is important. Um, but I think that the key to showing value is being ahead of things, is to show that you are, competitive monitoring is one of your best ways to show proactiveness. It's to show you're watching the landscape, you're seeing what's going on, you're communicating it proactively and having consistency in your deliverables. So when you say you're gonna deliver something, you better damn well deliver it. You better damn well deliver it with quality and on time. Um, no exceptions on that. The, you know, Having a weekly report needs to be every Wednesday. Pick a day, I don't give a crap when it is, but it's like literally come hell or high water, that newsletter is going out, that teardown is going to get done, that battle card is going to get posted. Um, and it needs to be consistent delivery uh, and constant feedback. You can't just do things in a vacuum. Can't live in your own little world thinking whatever you're doing is awesome, push out, walk on. It's You have to push it out, let it simmer, let it get out there in the world, and then ask for feedback and ask, hey, did we hit the mark? Did you get what you needed? What else do you need? What's missing? And having that, that conversation. It sounds to me, this is actually reminds me of a conversation I just had earlier with, with uh, Brad from Avista. And we, we talked about this too. And he said, you, you, there's, from that attribution standpoint, there's many, many things you can point towards. But if you're getting asked for just that hard number, it's like you said, you're on the hot speak. But he mentioned, he's like, but my CRO and CEO, they understand every deal is competitive right now. They understand what Compete brings to the table and they're coming to me for new projects and they know that I'm going to come to them with what's happening in the space. And it sounds to me that it's sort of this, all of these different touch points and uh, opportunities to bring Compete in front of leadership, get them involved is kind of part and parcel with sort of this proving the impact. It's if you come with just a, here's a number, like don't ask any questions rather than making it about them, seeing how the sausage is made in different ways as well. I mean, if you get your CRM aligned, you get your CRM locked down where you, the people are actually putting in the right competitor in the, in the opportunity. Uh, we were just talking to a friend, a colleague this at lunch just today saying that 8% of 8% of his opportunities had the right competitor in there. The rest of them were all just garbage. 8% and, and he works at a pretty large company. So that's a pretty very large percentage of opportunities that are garbage. It's so starting with a, a proper CRM with getting the sales team to understand that people are looking at this. I think half the time sales teams don't even realize you're looking at that CRM data and you're making research decisions based on it. So it's by, if you can take that data as it stands today, if your CRM's a mess, show that data, 
as this is what it is, guys, go to your sales team, your sales leaders and say, this is what your CRM is saying. This is your competitive landscape. 95% is other, or it's the first competitor on the alphabetical list in the dropdown menu. For us, it's A10 networks, which is like, I don't know how many percentage we have. And then A10 is not exactly one of our prime competitors for, for the record. But you show them that, they will get a very gross reaction. They'll be like, that's not right. That's horrible. And they might be influenced to action. But if you never show them, the mess the CRM is, they will never make a change. So you have to kind of force it by showing them how bad it is. And that that would then once you have the CRM locked into the right um, competitors and you've got the right data in there, then you can start pulling revenue numbers and like, okay, I had this particular sales support. I set, I helped these particular opportunities that drove X amount of revenue. Then you can start getting dollars. And that's where your CRO comes in. And he's like, okay, I get this. I understand why you're, you're valued, but you can't really do that unless your CRM's in order. CRM in order, get them bought into the value of what you're doing. It's your value selling internally too. Like you mentioned from the compete standpoint with your sellers, like you have to sell on the value and you know, just hear all these bells and whistles. I, to close this out, I, I would love for you to share what is the biggest mistake you've made in your compete career? <laughs> And is it being at a Waffle House at 3 a.m.? No, that was one of the best decisions we ever made um, because it became an annual tradition. I have so many stories. Some of the best ideas came out of that Waffle House. No, I would say I've made a lot of mistakes. And anyone who's been in any profession for any length of time, if you have any self-awareness, you will admit you've made mistakes. But I think the biggest one that resonates with me the most is taking on too much. I was a very hungry young analyst building out a team, building out a function. I had a, a, a product management leader, SVP, come up and say, hey, I need you to do, take on and build these bet dashboards for the executive leadership team. And my team had only covered a portion of our portfolio. And he said, Kate, can you take on the whole portfolio? And I'm thinking, oh, that can't be that hard, right? Sure, let's do it. Because then that, that just shows how awesome we are. And we can just use that as a catalyst to get more resources. That was the whole intention. Instead, we delivered crap. The, the dashboards that we created for the teams that, you know, that we supported, that we had ample coverage for were great. The ones that we didn't have coverage for, we kind of had to like work with product managers, product marketing, internal experts. They were, they were complete shit. Absolute crap. Missed the mark on it. I had one GM literally tell me to my face, this is the biggest piece. This is the biggest garbage I've ever seen in, in competitive world. I, I can't use any of this. It was embarrassing because I take into on too much. The lesson I learned there is stop being, taking on all the things you can't do them right. The key word in CI is no, I cannot do that. I can't do that effectively. So you say no to the things you can't do. And when I did that, I stopped the noise. I said, I'm not doing any of those other portfolio pieces. I'm only doing the ones we're covering that were staffed. Two years later, well, actually it was about 18 months later, um, we were able to get headcount to cover those two other areas or those three other areas, and we were able to do them effectively. And we built out the program from there. Um, but by saying, if you say yes to everything and you half-ass everything, everyone thinks your program's crap. No one thinks you do anything well. But if you can say no and really refine and craft the areas you're really good at, then people are gonna want more of that and then you, they'll bring the resources to you. That was the biggest lesson I ever learned. You're building an appetite. Yes. And you're, you kind of shift this probably like, when you say yes so much, you sort of subconsciously are building a persona of an order taker as well. Like I can take this on, sure. And then people dump 
Yes. That's going over this way. That's going over this way. You'd be amazed. Some of the, if you say yes to everything, uh, the, some of the crap requests you get, and you're like, what? That has nothing, that's not even CI related. Why am I writing <laughs> marketing content? But it's because you say yes to everything. They're like, well, I don't want to do my job. Here, you go do it. And that's how you got on this podcast today. Marketing <laughs> exactly. related content. Full circle. <laughs> yes. Uh, on that note, I can't take any more of your time because we've got a conference to go we to. We do. So thank you so much, Elise. This Thank is awesome. you. This is fun. Thanks again. One, two,